Hey, I'm Dave Gerhardt, and you're listening to the B2B Marketing Leaders Podcast, the show where I go behind the scenes with today's top marketing leaders to talk about what they really do every day. My guest today is Christopher Lockhead. All right. Hey, everybody. This is a special episode of the B2B Marketing Leaders Podcast because I don't know if you know this, Lockhead. I started this new podcast where I interview CMOs like, and I ask them 15 very specific questions because what I realized is that that's the stuff that I want to know and nobody ever gives that. And so it's not like the sexiest podcast in the world, but it's like, how many people are on your team? What's your budget? What are the channels? Like, that's the stuff that people want. But I, I've wanted to have you on and just catch up with you for so long that like you are the most not traditional guests. And so I'm definitely not going to ask you any of those questions. I just want to hang out and catch up with you. And I have some questions. I didn't do any prep because I actually know you, which makes this more fun. But I know people are excited to hear from you. And so for people who might not know exactly who you are, although I've been talking about you in every channel for two years now. So just give the quick explainer to who you are. Well, I got thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid. And with really very few options, either manual labor or something else, I decided something else. And so I started my first company. And so, you know, many entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship is a way up in the world for them. And that's cool if you're at Harvard and you write a new carbodingulator and it takes off and you get 10, you know, 100 million bucks worth of funding and away you go. That's cool. But like many entrepreneurs, for me, entrepreneurship was a way out. And so I got started early. By 27, 28, I was the uh, head of marketing of a publicly traded early pioneer in the CRM business in Silicon Valley. I grew up in Canada. I sold my business. That company was called Vantive. I sold my business to Vantive and moved out here. And so at 27, 28, that's what I was up to. And then I did another internet startup called Scient. And then ultimately Mercury, which we sold to HP for $4.5 billion, making HP my favorite company forever. And so three tours of duty as a public company CMO. And then I took a whole bunch of time off and then I started a boutique consultancy and that ultimately turned into a book called Play Bigger. That consultancy continues, although I retired from doing that kind of work. And then I wrote a second book and now I have two podcasts. And so today I do a little bit of investing and advising, but mostly I'm focusing on authoring and podcasting. Did you want to write a book? Because it's something that like, I don't want to do it now, but I've like, I could write a good book in a couple of years, but seems like such a process. Like, did you have to get yourself to do it or did it come easy? No, I had to be gotten to do it. Um, (laughs) Isn't that how it usually goes? Yeah. I'm dyslexic and I have four or five other documented learning differences as we lovingly refer to them today. I call I roll them all together and call it dysphuclia. And so as a dysphuclic, the idea of writing a book was really not on my mind. And then a dear friend of mine named Peggy Burke, she was the founder of 1185 Design. She's now retired, but she was the leading branding design agency in Silicon Valley for easily 25 years. And so she was on me for years, DG, to write a book, write a book, write a book. And and I was like, really? So one day she, she sat me down and she shoved her foot right up my ass. And I started to talk to my partners slash collaborators and, and away we went. I've never asked you this and I don't care because I know you, you will take it the right way. But like, was the book like a good money maker for you? Obviously, you probably didn't need to make a ton of money after those gigs, but does it make money or is it like, oh, people know you. And so you might, if you did consulting still, you would land gigs through, through the book. It seems to have done well. I mean, it's, it's like a cult 
classic among like the B2B crowd. I think we had some, you know, influence on that with Drift. I know Sequoia folks love the book, but like, how has that worked? So the answer is the book has made money and, you know, without getting into the specifics, yeah, I have co-authors and an agent. And so I don't even know what I'm allowed to fucking say, but here's what I do know. It's in the top 1% of business book sales ever, maybe even higher than that. I don't know. The book's done great. And we have made money on it. Although from an ROI point of view, it would make no sense, right? So if you looked at all the things that you do around the book, at least for somebody like me, if I was going to take that same amount of effort and put it into something, and the primary goal is to make money, I could have made a lot more money doing a lot of other things for it's, that. It's amount. funny you said that because at Privy, right now we're publishing a book and we had some back and forth with a couple people on it. And somebody was like, well, you guys are going to sell this book as a company. You know, How do you guys feel about that? I'm like, look, we're selling it because we're, we're going to break even so we can do the book production of it. Like That's why I think people will buy it. But I trust me, if we wanted to make money, we would not be publishing a book as the means by doing that. That would not be that's the way right. to do it. That's right. You know, people say this, the same thing to me about the podcast. Like, oh, well, you know, you make money on the podcast and you make money on the books now. And like, well, yes, we make money and it's not an inconsequential amount of money. And this may sound however it may sound, but the reality is from an ROI perspective, if you're looking at it from a math point of view and you're a guy like me and you wanted to make money, this is not what you would do, right? So that was never the motivation for any of it. It's yeah. awesome that it makes money. It's cool, but it's not about any of that stuff, right? Look, you're talking to a guy who didn't go to school and has had, for the most part, a magical life. And I believe in entrepreneurship. I believe in technology. I believe in innovation. And I believe in the power of our industry being the technology industry to change the world. I mean, just look around. And I believe that the greatest untold story of 2020 is the way that the technology industry, particularly those of us in the cloud, and I would include telecom, have scaled. I mean, the numbers are extraordinary. A hundred million Americans are working from home. It is a goddamn miracle the internet did not blow up and obliterate. You know, you and I are on Zoom right now. Eric Yuan, who I've gotten to know a little bit, unbelievable entrepreneur. How many companies in the history of companies have scaled like his company? Walmart has hired in excess of 250,000 people. Instacart has hired 300 some odd thousand people. Amazon has hired in excess of 250,000 people in a matter of months. Think about onboarding those number of people. Think about the scaling of the internet usage. Think about the fact that there hasn't been massive amounts of security breaches happening all over the place. And I could go on and on, but I won't. My point is the technology industry has scaled to this challenge, has proven the cloud to be an essential service and has delivered in a way that few industries, if any, ever have. You know, I'm excited about our industry. I love marketing, right? And so these are the things that I care about. And I care about the people who want to start and build and grow these companies in these categories who are committed to making some kind of a difference in the world. And so if you get to a place in your life where you care about things like that, and in my case, you'd been lucky and you now have time and, and resources to do things, and you have people like Peggy Burke shoving their foot up your ass to make you write stuff down, you go, you get busy. And that's what I've been busy doing. <laughs> this is why I love you. I haven't had that thought because it's not what I think about, but you're 100% right. Everything has just worked. 
<laughs> like since March, everything has worked and continued to work. Most of the people that listen to this podcast, we stress over onboarding five new people in a quarter, <laughs> you know, at a company. Right. This stuff is happening insane overnight. So I want to talk to you about the book. I want to talk to you about your love of podcasting, especially as a channel for a business. But while we're on the book, let's talk about it because I talk about your book a lot with marketing people. And the number one question is like, does everyone have to create a category? And I, I don't know if I've ever had a perfect answer to this. So this is not me. Like, I don't know. I want to ask you, I want to hear what you say. Like, you know, somebody big, Dave, here's this type of business that I have. We're trying to create a category. And like, do you ever sometimes hear from someone and it's like, I don't know, you don't need to create a category for that. Like, how do you answer that? Here's how I answer it. Does everybody need to? No. Should everybody? No. And this is going to sound however it's going to sound, but most people don't have what it takes to do this. Right. Now that said, here's the reality. When you make a decision not to design your own category, First of all, that's a decision that most people don't make in their frontal lobe. They don't even realize they didn't make it. And so here's the problem, DG. In business, in marketing, we get taught a bunch of bullshit. And as a result of that bullshit, we make an unconsidered, undiscussed, unthought about, unresearched decision when we start a company or join a company or launch a product or whatever it is we're doing proactively in the world, okay? That what we are doing, and we never discussed this, what we are doing is we're creating this new carbodingulator and we're going to put this carbodingulator in the world and the world is going to love it because we're going to explain to them that our carbodingulator is better than their carbodingulator. And what we are doing is competing for demand in an existing market category such that we can drive our market share. That's the undeclared context for every fucking marketing discussion there ever has been. And I reject all of it. And here's why. That's not what the legends did. Steve Jobs would never have tolerated for a second any of their products being compared to anyone else's. And there's no way he thought he was competing. And interestingly enough, and Eddie's going to kill me for this, but I'm writing a new book with my buddy, Eddie Yoon, and my buddy, Nicholas Cole. Anyway, in the book, we're doing some primary research on market cap connected to category queen, category king businesses. And you will be stunned when you see the difference in market caps of companies who are competing versus creating. And this distinction between compete for existing demand and create net new demand is one of the most powerful distinctions in business. And when you look at it, okay, a smaller and smaller, and I, I don't want to give you the numbers because we're still working it, but a very small percentage of the S&P 500 represents almost 30% of the market cap. Yeah, 30% of the growth of the market cap of the S&P 500 has been from a very small percentage of the companies. My point is this, the most valuable companies in the world are creation companies. Apple creates things. Walmart creates new things. Of course, Amazon, right? Companies who are in the compete business, look at the difference in market cap between Tesla and Ford. Why is it different? It's different because one company is creating a whole new future, is betting on something different, is creating net new demand. 
Okay. Another company is betting on things being the same and is in the compete business. And so when you compete, you get one level of growth rate, one level of success rate, one level of brand value, one level of acknowledgement for commitment and contribution to the world. And when you're in the compete business, it's exponentially higher. And so to get back to your question, sure, most people should compete. Just open another fucking coffee shop and just say, we have the best coffee in the neighborhood and let the chips fall where they may. Fine. Legends don't do that. They bring something new to the table. Create versus compete is a great way to think about that. Like, are you creating something? Or are you competing in existing? And I also think your point, the way you backed into the story about like, it starts with demand. If you're going to compete, you have to be able to capture some percentage of the demand. If you're going to create you have the opportunity to then go and create demand for that product, right? Like the whole Apple, you know, nobody knew that they needed AirPods until they had AirPods. Nobody knew that they needed those. The iPod headphones became iconic because they were white. That's all. They just stood out, you know, because everybody else's headphones were like the black cord. So does this mean like, if you go back pre your book, right? 22 immutable laws of marketing law. Number one is it's better to be first than it is to be better. Like your whole philosophy, you agree with that? Yes, but, and I listen, I love recent trout, make no mistake. For me, the OGs are Ogilvy, David Ogilvy, and recent trout. Those guys stand in a very special place for me. So, and I don't agree with everything they said. This one, I think, has been fucked up over time very, very badly, particularly by the technology industry, who, you know, we created this stupid expression in the 90s called first mover advantage. Who's the first mover advantage? Who's going to get the first mover advantage? So what's happened over time is people have been stupid and unrigorous in their thinking. They think that just by having the first carbodingulator, they're going to win. Right, okay, well, okay. Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg didn't have the first fucking social network. There have been social networks for 30 years, 40 years. BBSs were, were bulletin boards were fucking social networks, okay? There was this thing called GeoCities that had a zillion bucks behind it that tried to do this and shot itself in the genitals. So, Hey, think about Zoom, right? This is not new. <laughs> it's not new. And so it's a specific distinction, but it's the one that makes all the difference. And the distinction is this. The first to have your design of the category tip. So did Apple make the first smartphone? Of course not. But they made the world think they did. Right. They did enough different with the product that they could argue a different with the category. And so if you want to geek out from a category design perspective, they redesigned the category. That's what they did. But most people say, well, they went because they had a better product. Well, that's subjective. I agree, frankly, but you know what? I fucking love my BlackBerry. Right. And as a big guy with big freaking knobby hands, I still can't type on my iPhone the way I could on my BlackBerry because of a tactile keyboard. So better is in the eye of the beholder very much. But what they did do is they changed the definition of what this kind of device was. That's called category redesign. And you do that via this thing called a point of view. They had a, and I'm going to use these words on purpose, different point of view about what problem or problems and therefore solutions a smartphone should solve. 
and they redesigned it based on a completely different perspective, a completely different point of view, and they aligned their product to that different. When that different point of view and that different product came together, all of a sudden, the market, that is to say you and me, what we expected from a smartphone changed. They wrote a new spec. In B2B terms, they rewrote the RFP for the industry. And when everybody said, oh, it's not about a tactile keyboard and email with phone, it's about all this new shit, then all of a sudden BlackBerry was left in a world where the world had moved from their definition to a new definition. And when that happened, bam, the category tipped its scale. Mm -hmm. And so Apple wasn't the first to have a smartphone product, but they were the first to make the category tip at massive scale. And once that happened, that was it. And it's been it ever since. Do you have a revenue threshold when you talk about these companies? Because like if I said to you, hey, I'm running a $50 million SaaS business, we're competing. You'd be like, great. It's good for you. It's good business. But like you're talking about a truly like the path to a unicorn, like whatever you're going to do your new analysis and data on, however you're going to define those companies. Is it some revenue threshold? I mean, over time, it will get to that for sure. In any one moment in time, focusing too hard on that is, well, let me step, take a step back. You have to take a look at, okay, so what is the category potential? Some people in our industry call it total addressable market. So you have to say, okay, if this works, we have a set of assumptions that we're building this business on. We call that a point of view. So you have a point of view about a problem or set of problems and therefore differentiated solutions, right? So based on that point of view, we're going to get this company funded and we're going to get rolling. Well, as you take potential and you start to be able to measure it, that is to say, how many people are now shopping for carbodingulators? Okay, great. That becomes very important. So size of category, size of market becomes important. Growth rate of category becomes really important. And then your growth and your bookings in the context of how big is the category and how much is the category growing? That gives us the picture that we need. In other words, you could say to me, hey, we got a $50 million business and we're growing at 40%. That could be great news or that could be a disaster. If the category is growing at 120% and your next nearest competitor is growing at 80%, you're dead, right? So the numbers of any business at any point in time, in my opinion, have to sit in the context of, how fast the category growing and who's getting what share. The other thing I'd say, and then, then we can sort of pop it open more if you like, is in our industry, there comes a moment in time. It tends to be around the three-year mark, plus or minus, where there's an 18 to 24-month category battle that goes down. It's lesser on the consumer side and a little longer on the enterprise side for hopefully obvious reasons. But there's roughly let's just call it a two-year category battle. Two questions are going to get answered. A, is this category going to tip at any kind of scale? And B, who's going to be the queen or the king? That's the most seminal point in an earlier stage company's life because it's either all on or all over after that period. And that tends to get sorted out and we can dig into the research. It's in the book if you like, but it tends to get sorted out in six to 10 years. We call it the six to 10 law in the book based on some data science research we did. 
I actually Does that think, answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. I just feel like a lot of people ask the question because it becomes such a topic, especially in marketing lately, even though you wrote the book four years ago, you know, the last couple of years. If you go and read the book, I mean, look at the names of the companies, right? You're talking about the most valuable companies of all time. I think it becomes, that's the path, right? If that's the business that you're trying to create. I do want to talk about marketing stuff, but I have to ask you about your other book because I actually think niche down is probably like a more applicable just mantra and lesson for everybody, which is like, this like went away for a while, but I think it's really powerful, which is the power of owning a niche is in everything in life. Like here's one example. I'm feeling this even personally. So I have this like DGMG, which is my, I created a marketing group for B2B marketers and it's grown like crazy because I'm saying, hey, B2B, like I'm not saying not everything in marketing and people starting to, I have a reputation in B2B marketing. And so I've created now a brand around that. And like you talk about be known for a niche that you own. That's the thing that I think about most when I think about you now is, is niche down, not necessarily, you know, play bigger even. Well, great, because it's such a powerful aha, whether it's for your popsicle stand. You know, one of my favorite examples is this restaurant, Sushi Rito. Right? <laughs> right, yeah. Because I love sushi. I love burritos. <laughs> and I also am a guy on the go. And if you ever tried to eat sushi on the go, it sucks because you get the plastic containers with the sushi in it. And then, you know, you want to get some soy sauce and some wasabi and shit going. And if you're like me, you're driving and your wife is feeding this shit to you. And then the sushi roll blows up and then there's rice all over the car. And, you know, shit gets stupid really fast, right? And one of the many legendary things about a burrito is it's awesome food and it comes in its self-contained you know, device that you could travel with it and eat it in the car. So these geniuses in San Francisco said, aha, we're going to solve the problem called how do you eat sushi on the go by combining two things that have never been combined before and ta-da, sushi rito. And what I love about that is most, you think about restaurants, right? It's one of the most common businesses ever started, right? Well, most people think, well, how are we going to be successful? Well, we're going to get a good location. You know, we need a good location. We're going to have great fucking food. You know, we know how to cook around this family here. So we're going to cook the great fucking food and grandma's repices, yeah, repices and all of that. And then we're going to hire some really good people. You know, we're going to have great service and we're going to price it right. So we're going to great service, great food, great location, great price. Come over to DG's restaurant. And the thing goes down in six months. This happened to a buddy of mine who, you know, unfortunately didn't listen to any of this. So you could do that and just compete like everyone else. Or you could say we're the world's first sushi burrito. What's the simplest, clearest message that you want to be known for? Oh, yeah, my friend Mike owns a restaurant down the street, whatever. No, my friend Mike has a sushi burrito place. Right. I just think and here's the other interesting thing that most people don't get. And we talk about it in both books. People think category first, brand second. So if, I, if you're visiting me here in Santa Cruz, which I hope one day after all this is yes. <laughs> me too. Me too. And we're having a beer. Or if I'm visiting you in Boston for that matter. 2022. Yeah, exactly. If I say to you, hey, you know, DG, you want to go out to dinner tonight? And you're like, yeah, it'd be great to go out to dinner. I say, okay, well, you know, let's go to Gabrielle's, one of my favorite restaurants in town. A logical question is, what Where kind of restaurant go? is it? Yeah. And if I say to you, well... It's a Greek restaurant or it's an Italian restaurant or it's a, you're looking for the category. 
And you might say, oh, you know, I, I don't feel like Japanese. I had that last night. Could we do Italian? And then you go, okay, well, what are your favorite Italian restaurants? And so we think category first, brand second. You have to think guitars are cool and want to learn to play guitar before you start thinking about Fenders and Gibsons, right? Mm, and so most that. people have all of this backwards, brand, 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 brand. You know, in a lot of ways, the brand religion has been shoved down our throats and most people have accepted it. And look, I'm a three-time CMO. I love brands. But fucking A, could we stop praying at the fucking altar of brands? Categories make brands, not the other way around. When Google takes their zillion-dollar brand and sticks it on a social network in a lame-ass attempt to compete with Facebook and they call it Google+, they have their ass handed to them. Red Bull Cola got crushed. Coke didn't have to do shit. This happens over and over and over again, okay? And what these companies forget is the category makes the brand, not the other way around. Energy drink is what makes Red Bull a brand. By the way, when they then go to compete against four-hour energy, they get hammered. Why? Four-hour energy created the category called energy shot. And when you take energy drink brand leader and put it in an energy shot after energy shots been has distinguished itself as a very separate and distinct category, right? Guess what? Four hour energy crushes Red Bull in the energy shot category. The category makes the brand not the other way around. The reason we know the brands that we know is because they designed and dominate a category. This is why I love you. Like when it's a good interview, I take notes and like I'm writing down stuff for myself, but like the ROI in this interview is huge just now for, for the, I think you just answered the whole category question also, which is like category first and then brand. I haven't read many like business strategy books because they usually put me to sleep. But one of them that I've read is playing to win. And the whole strategy is like exactly what you laid out, which is like first, the number one thing you have to define is like, where are you going to play? Yes, that's category design. Exactly. Then how you're going to win within that category might be brand. Yes. And what you might call performance marketing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've also- Brand and demand. I've kind of had a, a revelation on the brand thing also. I love it and I talk about it a lot. But I actually realized that what I mean, I don't mean brand. I've been, I've been talking about it wrong. I've been using like the words brand and creativity almost interchangeably. And so like what I realize I'm, a, I'm an advocate for the most is not necessarily brand and marketing because you could just run ads, that would be fine, but you'd win on creativity. I think like creativity is the thing that gets me fired up about marketing. It's not whether you built a brand, own a brand, whatever. It's, oh, how can you use creativity in a world where everything is going to be run by machines and AI and you don't even have to use Facebook ads, man. Facebook just runs your ads for you, right? The variable for success is going to be creativity. And so like, I'm just trying to reshape my narrative around that. It's not about brand, it's about creativity. Yeah, and I think in a lot of cases creativity in a specific way, which is how does the world view your ideas? Because I have to subscribe to your thinking before I consider your category, never mind your brand. Right. Right. So Benioff has to show up and say, hey, everything about the way we do computing is fucking wrong. No software. And at the time, there was violent opposition to the cloud. Today, the cloud is a given. 
Okay. That took place in roughly 20 years. That's extraordinary. Literally do a 180 to say, hey, look, I know you got data centers and servers and storage and security and networks and blah, 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 all that shit. You don't need any of that shit anymore. All you need is a browser. Oh, and by the way, we'll take your customer data, your sales rep data, your forecast data. We'll have that over here and we'll manage it for you. That was an insane idea in 1998. <laughs> I know. I was there. It was the exact opposite of what everybody did and people laughed at it and then there was violent opposition to it and the CIOs of major enterprises were like, we're never giving some company we never heard of our fucking data. That's never going to happen. We're blah, 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 bank or we're yada, yada manufacturing co or we're whatever, right? No fucking way. We, we just spent the last 40 years building all these data centers to protect ourselves from this stupid idea of yours. <laughs> I love it. The Salesforce example is a good one. I mean, okay, so if you use that as an example, they didn't create the category of CRM. Nope. So they decided we're going to play category first, then brand, right? We're going to play in the CRM category and we are going to redefine it by moving to the cloud. Correct. And this happens over and over and over again. One of my favorite new categories, because I'm turning into a super consumer of it, is electronic bikes, e-bikes. Ooh, so what are we seeing in e-bikes? Well, the vast majority of the early innovators are, guess what? Startups. It's not the major bike companies, just like in our industry, right? Sure. And they're pioneering this new technology. And I think there's an emerging category, Queen. I'm not an expert on the category, so I'm not sure. But I think it's probably going to be this company called Rad Bikes. But we'll see. Um, and so there's this new category. It's completely transforming the space. I don't know if it's going to replace it. So if you think about the electric guitar and the acoustic guitar, the electric guitar did not, quote unquote, disrupt. Another word that pisses me off. The acoustic guitar, there's now two categories, right? So in my case, I'm going to have e-bikes and I'm going to have bikes, right? When Jobs launches the iPad, he says it's the third device because he's saying to you, there's phones, there's laptops. And now there's this thing. Translation, I want you to buy three things, not two, right? So the e-bike category pioneers are not necessarily disrupting bikes. They're not saying stop buying bikes, but they're saying you got to have one of these too. And here's the other interesting, aha, uh -huh, new categories or niches create new categories or niches. So here's what happens in e-bikes. Well, you buy an e-bike like my wife and I did. Then you go and you get your helmet for your mountain bike and you put it on and you get on your e-bike. And I don't know why, but you immediately look like a dork. <laughs> I don't know why. You just do. You're now a donkey. That's right. You I don't that. know why. You and need I'm the not iPod headphones. Correct. Your helmet, I've never been accused of being a fashion icon, but your helmet does not go with your bike anymore. Well, ta-da. Guess who's the leader in helmets, or at least one of them. I don't know if they're the, but an emerging leader in these helmets for these new e-bikes. It's not Giro, who's an amazing company who makes helmets for mountain bikes and road bikes. It's a new company called Thousand. And why? Well, guess what? They're different. The vibe of them, they just go better. And oh, by the way, it's an amazingly, insanely great product. The Thousand helmet is so fucking comfortable. When I get off my bike and walk into your house and you say, do you want a beer? And I say, yes, I do. I'm drinking the beer before I realize I still have the helmet on. I'm like, wow. 
So it's a great product, insanely great new product, the great aesthetic, different look, different whole thing, right? So high on the different product scale and they attach to the emerging e-bike category and bam, they've niched down, right? So are they revolutionizing helmets? Are they the SpaceX of helmets? No, but they're still doing category design. They're still being radically different in the case of thousand helmets. And I'm on the website right now and it's like, it feels like a brand. It doesn't feel like a helmet company. It feels like a brand to use your brand word. No, it feels like a lifestyle brand. Yeah, like you kind of go, Hey, yeah, I like this logo and their shit looks really cool. And their color choices are beautiful. And yeah. somebody's fucking gives a shit about design about to your point on creative, right? Uh, here you go. The first thing that you do, they prompt you to take a quiz to get your helmet type. And it says, what, what kind of bike do you ride? A bicycle, an e-bike, a board, an e-scooter or other. Perfect. And you see what they're doing there is they're differentiating on the fact that they are the helmet company for these new use cases. They're not going after Giro. They're not doing that. Yeah, they know it. And the product is beautiful, right? I mean, it is absolutely beautiful. I'm actually, this is actually a sweet, sweet gift. We both have helmets. These are great gifts. We look like idiots with them. So this would be a good addition. But if you go back to your original question on who should and shouldn't design categories. Okay, so is Thousand Helmets an innovator at the same level that Amazon is? Probably not, right? But, and it's an important but, they saw a new opportunity emerging as these alternate approaches to transport were happening. E-bikes, scooters, electric skateboards, blah, 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 blah. And sure, if you wanna wear one on a regular bike, by all means, have at it, right? But they saw this thing coming out and they responded in a uniquely different way than the traditional helmet companies. And so they have, by a pure definition of creating a new category, have they done it? No. But what they did do is they niched the fuck down. They got very focused on this emerging opportunity and they did a very different thing with their product that happens to be a fucking great product. And the combination of smart category-oriented marketing with the legendary product tied to these other categories. Remember, at the beginning, we said new niches create new niches, right? They figured it out and bam, here they are. Yeah, I'm glad we told that you, you told that through a story because that is a great example. That's probably not going to be a billion dollar public company, but it's going to be, a, it's a great brand. That's a great company. It's a great business. Well, and, and it might be a $50 million acquisition. Sure. And it might be a $250 million acquisition. Or they might say, you know, fuck it. We want to be an incredible super niche standalone company and they become a company like that that I admire tremendously, Patagonia. Maybe they, you know, I don't know what they do, but here's what I know. They're becoming known for a niche that they own and with very, very savvy approach to niching down and a fantastic product, boom. I'll give you another one that's great. Um, The folks at Rad Bikes, you want to talk about creativity. They ship you the bike, right? You buy it on the internet and they ship you the fucking bike in this big box, right? Oh my God. How much does it weigh? 75 pounds. Yeah. 70 pounds. The bike is a coloring book. Excuse me, the box. They ship it to you in a box that is designed for you to cut out the major rectangle part of it and give it to your kid and let them color on it. Amazon will send you a phone case in a, in a box the size of the bike box and you just have to throw it away. Packaging is part of that experience and they know that. Yeah, Rad Bike made their box fun for kids. I got to talk to you about less fun stuff. Uh, we got to talk about CMO stuff for a second. What do you think the role of the CMO is 
today? If you're coaching me or you're advising me or, or whoever, somebody listening to this, like, how do you define what the role is? What do you own? And like, what do you ultimately need to be held accountable for? Awesome. I actually love that we're talking about this. So first, this starts with the CEO. Where are you? Hold on, hold on. I have to stop you right there. If we just stop right there, that alone is such an important lesson because I don't think it's the first question that people ask. If I'm going to show up and do marketing, I better know that the CEO understands this and we're going to get along. Absolutely. And the minute that's not true, it's all over. If the CMO doesn't have a direct, powerful, professional that bleeds into personal, even if it's mostly professional, but with a personal element that there's some genuine affection, admiration. Generally, the CMO wants to spend time with the CEO because he thinks she's great, et cetera, et cetera. They generally want to have a beer together. You know, and look, they don't have to be best friends and whatever, but they have to be in the pocket. So first of all, it starts with the CEO. And if you're the CEO, you've got to figure out where you are in the evolution of your category, because that says everything about what kind of CMO you hire. Because essentially, at a high level, this is true of all executives, but CMOs and heads of sales, I would even say heads of product and engineering, are they a warrior or a farmer? And you got to decide what you're doing. If you are a company who's achieved category queen status, and essentially you are you're playing it out. And by the way, I don't mean that pejoratively. I haven't spent my life doing that. Mm. But if you built a fucking category and you're now a $30 billion market cap company and what there is for you to do is milk this category for the next three years, I'm not sure uh, Zoom needs to do much more right now, right? They need to just do what they're doing, right? So yeah, how, do we, Zoom, how do we keep scaling the, these video calls? That's it, right? There's no marketing that needs to be done. Well, and you know, if you or I were CMO marketing or CMO at, at Zoom, and I met her, I'm blanking on her name now. She's a very smart gal. Her you name know, is there Jan- would be Janine Pelosi. Thank you, yeah. Janine Pelosi. She's a very smart gal, and I'm sure she's doing smart things. And, and there would be things you would be doing to build this thing for the long term. But what there is to do now, if you're Zoom, is farm, right? You're not in a war for shit. It's about executing and scaling, right? And it's about broadening and deepening. That's farming the category opportunity that you created. Have at it. Are we farming or not? And if we're not farming, that means we're probably firing up a new category. And as we talked about earlier, there's going to be an epic category battle for all the marbles because as we learned in Play Bigger, 76% of all of the economics in the category go to one company. So that requires a warrior CMO. And so the first thing is the CEO has to be smart enough to understand where she is in the evolution of her category and company, and therefore what the profile of CMO is. And then to your point, DG, the CMO needs to understand deeply the relationship with the CEO, and the CMO needs to understand what kind of CMO she is. You can have a legendary career in marketing being a farmer CMO. Really, I don't mean it pejoratively. It's not who I am. It is the wrong thing for anybody to ever call me about. I'm not interested in it, but I don't diss it. I respect it tremendously. It's just not what I do, not where my head's at. So a warrior CMO is very different. A warrior CMO is the one who understands how to design and dominate the category and how to, and I'm going to say this on purpose, how to lead the company from the front into this battle with the CEO, with the head of engineering. 
ideally with the CFO, and of course, with the head of sales. Yeah, this is great. People that listen to this are either in that seat or aspire to be that. And I think your list to me that I just wrote down, it's three pieces. It's, okay, if I'm the CMO coming in, number one is first, can I build a relationship with the CEO? Got to be in pocket with that person. You're going to travel a lot together. I mean, I think of my last job at Drift, like some of the best headlines that we wrote and stuff that we did was like sitting on an airplane or in an airport together or having a beer, right? hundred percent. So number one is relationship with the CEO. But I think more important than relationship is also just their appetite for marketing, right? They get it. Do they want to do it? Are they investing in it for the right reasons? Number two is which type of CMO do they need? A warrior or farmer? I love that. But which one are you, right? And so if the CEO gets marketing and they want to bring in a farmer, but you're the warrior, guess what's going to happen? Yeah. I'll share with you a secret, at least that I used as a warrior CMO. To take a step back from a career point of view, under no circumstances ever make yourself a candidate. Under no circumstances have a resume. My entire career, I didn't have a resume. My resume is, I'm fucking Christopher Lockhead. That's my fucking resume, right? (laughs) So in the recruiting process, DG, here's how it goes with me, right? They'll sit down and go, okay, well, you're one of the candidates that we're looking at and they start telling you about the thing and all that. And I go, okay, well, hold on a second. Maybe we can get back some time because if you're looking at other candidates who you think fit the spec, you should hire those people. Right. They say, what, what, what? I say, no, look, if you are talking to other people that you think can do this well, then we can end this discussion right now. And they go, what are you even talking about? It's like, no. And I'd say it a hundred times and say, look, I'm not like those people. And if you think a traditional CMO can fill the job, then you're going to fucking hate me. And so I'm out of here. If you can get the six-pack of Bud Light and that's going to make you happy, get the six-pack of Bud Light. If you know you have an appetite for the double IPA, okay, and just make sure we're on the same page for that. That's exactly right. If you want to buy Budweiser, go buy Budweiser. We're a craft double IPA. That's exactly right. Yeah, And that is how you differentiate yourself, or at least let me say it this way. That's how I differentiated myself as a warrior CMO. The minute there was another candidate, I knew that I was in the right place when they'd been looking for a CMO for three years, they've hired and fired a couple and it's like really going badly and they can feel the category war coming and they're like, all of a sudden, they're ready for something. And I'm going to use this word on purpose, different. <laughs> now we can have a conversation. Yeah, 100%. Did you know that at, well, yeah. you've always been this way. So I've always been this way. Yeah. All right. We have six minutes, which is not enough time to, but I want to do this anyway. So I'm going to ask you, Let's wrap up and just talk about podcasting because, you know, you're a huge advocate. Obviously, if anybody follows you on Twitter or Instagram, you post these little just funny, random, you know, podcasting, supportive, inspirational quotes, which are great. How do you think about the value of podcasting? Like, obviously for you personally, but let's more talking to the people that listen to this, which are B2B marketers. Like, I'm just so enamored with it as a channel and I know you are too, but I'd just love to hear the way that you talk about it. Like the value of podcasting as a business. You mean from a business point of view, from a marketing point of view? Yeah, like why, you know, you're going to go take that CMO job. Like, you know, I think that every company should have a podcast because it's like having your own radio station, right? But I want to hear it in your words because I know you're going to have like smarter things, wittier things to say than I am about it. So if you're a company today and you don't have a podcast, you're insane. That's the first part. (laughs) See, this is like exactly it. Yeah, that's it. You're insane. 
And here, I want to get the quote a thousand percent right because this is really, really fucking important. I want to sort of nail this. So there's this Grammy award-winning producer. His name is Monroe Jones, okay? And he said something to me that just stopped me in my tracks. And he says that he believes that podcasts are to the 2020s what rock and roll was to the 60s. What does that mean to you? Unpack that. What it means to me is this is one of the most exciting new mediums ever fucking created. And, you know, you think about this. The average podcast has approximately 200 listeners based on some of the data I've seen. Have you, have you seen anything different, DG? No, that's, I've always used that, that stat. It's like 100 to 200 downloads. Yeah. So let's say 100 to 200. Okay. Well, if you look at it from a, you know, compare that to the downloads of the new Ariana Grande Lady Gaga single, no, that really looks like shit. But on the other hand, if someone said to you and I, hey, gentlemen, we'd like to invite the two of you to come speak at an executive dinner for, uh, let's just call it 150, we'll go in the middle, 150 executives who care deeply about what you guys are experts on marketing, let's say, and do a fireside chat with the two of you on stage at this VIP dinner event for 150 executives. We'd at least listen, right? 100%. Especially go back to niche down. That's the value in it for business. Let's say you're selling some financial software to CFOs. If you only get a hundred downloads a month, but a hundred of those people are CFOs in your target market. You don't need to be Ariana Grande. That's your whole business. So you do an any you do interviews throughout the year with every CFO. You get them on your show. You make them feel stars of your stuff. You get smarter because you're talking to them all the time. So one like little podcasting hack I think you would appreciate is so when I go to Privy, they're in e-commerce. I buy things online, but I don't know e-commerce customers. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to host our podcast, the e-commerce marketing show, even though I'm not in e-commerce because it's going to be a way that I can get content. But also every single week for an hour now, I'm doing an interview with one of our customers. And I'm not like, well, Bob, tell me about your website. I'm like, wait, wait, so hold on a second. You click this button and you do this thing. You have this budget. Like it's been an unreal hack. And I hate that word for me to actually learn the industry. And we've gotten so much content through that one channel alone that I, you know, the ROI on it is insane. Like you said. Well, and look, here's a secret. Hopefully it's becoming less and less a secret over time. From a sales perspective for B2B companies, you want to get a meeting with the CEO of a prospect? Have somebody call him and invite him to be on your podcast. And probably she says yes, <laughs> right? It's way easier to ask somebody to be a guest than say, hey, can I come sell you our shit, right? 100%. The ultimate like enterprise ABM play that I would run, I go to a sales leader and I say, hey, give me the top 100 named accounts. And I put them up on a wall and I'd say, okay, who's the buyer at each one of those accounts? Over the course of the year, there's 100 of them. We're going to reach out to every single one of these people. We're going to try to do two episodes a week. That's 104 throughout the course of the year. So we need 100 targets. We're going to do podcasts with them all first. Then we're going to promote the episode. Then we're going to do the whole thing. Then at the end of the year, let's go back and let's look at pipeline created from that 100 list. And I bet you that the number is going to be higher than any other marketing campaign we've ever done. Yes. In addition to that, you know, my buddy Eddie and I started writing the beginning of the pandemic about this. And we did a thing for HBR on it and blah, blah. Sort of two big ideas connected that to be successful through this crisis, companies need to be thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous. And one of my favorite examples, we were talking about guitars. One of the things the Fender folks did 
was they had created essentially an online course to teach people to learn to play guitar because they're smart. They know that what category leaders do is they expand the size of the category. If you want to sell Bibles, there must be Christians. If you want to sell guitars, there needs to be guitar players. So they created an online learning platform. I think it's called Fender Play to teach people how to play guitar. Great. When the pandemic hits, what do they do? Bam, they make it free. I think for a year, but they make it free for some period of time. Anyway, I just saw, I think it was Wall Street Journal. I just saw an interview with the fucking CEO of Fender. And he's talking about how they cannot believe that they have had a breakthrough in revenue this year. But a combination of people being at home, wanting to try new stuff, them being radically generous with this learning platform and thoughtfully aggressive about real creative marketing, you know. So what's my point? If you want to learn how to play guitar, somebody gives you this amazing resource for free, you start to use that resource, it endears you to them, then you say, you know, maybe as I'm learning how to play guitar, maybe I want a new guitar. Well, whose fucking guitar are you going to pick? You're going to pick Fender's. And so that is this whole idea of thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous rolled into one. Make a contribution Make a difference. Don't create content. Make a difference. Make a contribution, right? And as you do that and you share learnings, my friend David Sachs, we just have him coming on an episode of the podcast. He wrote a whole thing, article about movement marketing, that legendary startups create movements, right? And so by being radically generous with thoughtful content that makes a difference, you can create a movement, you can grow your category potential, you can expand the TAM, and you can endear people to you and build your brand. And so that's what legends are doing when they do, and it's not just podcasts, they use podcasts as a center of a thoughtful strategy for leading the category forward. It fits so well in everything. Like you can connect it to everything that you're doing. I can't follow that up any better. Christopher Lockhead, you're a mentor virtually through mine. We get to talk every now and then. I appreciate you coming on and doing this. If you're not already listening to both of your podcasts, go to them. You have a marketing podcast and you have Follow Your Different. Just search for his name on wherever you get your podcast. You'll find it. But also, I think the most important line I've seen from you about marketing is marketing is the leadership department. So go and look up all Christopher's stuff. Check it out. Slap that one out there. Christopher, I appreciate you. Stay safe. I will talk to you later. Thank you, brother. All right. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. If you like this content, I have a whole lot more where that came from. It's in my private marketing group called DGMG. There's almost 2,000 members in there. 80% of them are B2B marketers. And it's been an amazing community that we launched over a year ago. Uh, I've already posted over 400 different types of content in there, articles, videos, blogs, podcasts. You can go and check it all out, patreon.com slash Dave Gerhardt. It's an amazing place to be. Plus, I do exclusive AMAs with these podcast guests in our group, and it's the only place I post the full transcript and show notes, so you might want to go check it out, patreon.com slash Dave Gerhardt. I also want to give a shout out and a thank you to our friends at Hatch for producing this episode. You can get unlimited podcast editing at usehatch.fm. It's awesome. They're helping me with the show. It's why it sounds so great. And you should go and check it out too. See you on the next episode.